the Pearl Harbor conspiracy. A deluge of top secret reports fell on the desks of America's spy masters. Overwhelmed, the analysts missed clear signs of impending disaster. The intelligence bureaucracies distrusted each other and didn't share information that could have averted an unprecedented attack on the United States. This was not 9-11. It was the 7th of December, 1941. On that day in Pearl Harbor, 2,400 lives were lost. It was a devastating defeat that changed America forever. Controversy has surrounded the subject of Pearl Harbor, the event that finally propelled the reluctant nation into the Second World War. But was the surprise attack really a surprise? Who knew about it? And who failed to avert it? We knew what Japan was up to. We knew it before Pearl Harbor. We knew it all through the war. From the outset, some experts asserted that the highest echelons of the administration of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt knew of the Japanese plans in advance and did nothing to stop them. As new evidence emerges, the charges persist, giving rise to fierce debate. FDR, it seems, obviously wanted the Japanese to surprise and utterly destroy Pearl Harbor. What motive could Roosevelt possibly have had for doing such a thing? There's not a drop of evidence. There's speculation, accusation, allegation, and I think sort of dreaming. What we have here is a cover-up and a conspiracy on the part of the FDR administration. Did President Roosevelt know in advance? And has a government-led cover-up continued to this day? motorcycle engines heralded the funeral cortege as it moved slowly toward the capital. On a caisson, under an American flag, lay the body of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the longest-serving president in American history. Four months later, in August 1945, the United States dropped atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. surrendered. The war was over. These events marked a transformation. The emergence of the United States as a leading player on the world stage and a new willingness to investigate the event that catapulted America into the war. Three months after VJ Day, Senator Alban Barkley of Kentucky convened the Joint Congressional Committee on the Investigation of the Pearl Harbor Attack. This exhaustive review produced 25,000 pages of testimony and documentation. The committee laid much of the blame on the commanders at Pearl Harbor and largely exonerated Roosevelt and his senior advisors. But its conclusions resulted in charges of cover-up and cronyism. Now, in the 21st century, 
As the American government declassifies reams of World War II documents, some experts are reopening the case for a conspiracy. The only way that the Japanese could pull off such a real and complete and total victory at Pearl Harbor was if FDR and his administration was to withhold the vital intelligence from Pearl Harbor. The question is, why did FDR withhold it? Richard Hill is an historian with a PhD from Georgetown University. He contends that FDR and members of his cabinet were aware of the Japanese plans to attack Hawaii. General Marshall and Admiral Stark and indeed FDR indeed knew that Pearl Harbor was being painted for a bombing run by the Japanese. Previously, America had cracked Japan's secret codes. It meant that cryptographers were able to decipher a coded message sent from Tokyo to its spies in Hawaii. That missive has since become known as the bomb plot message. After the war, the Congressional Committee examined the bomb plot message. Officers questioned about it had passed it off as unremarkable at the time. But the committee heard one general testify that the bomb plot message was in fact unique. Of the thousands of decoded Japanese cables, only this one asked for specific locations of ships at anchor. The bomb plot's intelligence specifically asked for the dispositions of the warships and airplanes guarding Pearl Harbor. The obvious intent of the bomb plot's intelligence was to place a grid over Pearl Harbor so that pilots flying in would immediately be able to identify the targets. American couriers sent the deciphered message to the Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Harold Stark, and then to the Army Chief of Staff, General George Marshall. Secret of World War II. 
all agree that sometime before Pearl Harbor, the U.S. had broken the Japanese diplomatic codes. But in 2000, Robert Stinnett completed almost 20 years of research by publishing his findings, which conclude that America had also cracked the top-secret operational codes of the Japanese Navy. According to Stinnett, this proves that Roosevelt's closest military advisors must have known when and where the attack would occur. The fact that we broke it, we knew what Japan was up to. We knew it before Pearl Harbor. We knew it all through the war. We knew where, the, where Japan's uh, ships were going to be, what their plans were, were to be. Stinnett's evidence includes two U.S. naval dispatches. In a memo sent in October 1940, over a year before Pearl Harbor, Rear Admiral Royal Ingersoll, the Assistant Chief of Naval Operations in Washington, documented the progress of his code-breaking team. This secret cable to his specific commanders referred to the Japanese Naval Operational Codes. It read, It is estimated that at least six months will be required before complete messages can be read. He said that we had broken the Japanese operations code. If Ingersoll's timetable was accurate, America should have been able to decrypt secret Japanese naval correspondence by the spring or summer of 1941. The smoking gun of Pearl Harbor is the breaking of the Japanese uh, naval code and, and, and it's only until recently when I filed Freedom of Information Act requests with the Navy that I got these records and the uh, including the uh, officer in charge who actually uh, broke the code and, and confirmed that that officer in charge was Lieutenant Commander John Leetweiler he and his 75 man code breaking team labored inside an impregnable tunnel cut into a mountainside on the island of Corregidor in the Philippines Photographers would work about eight-hour shifts, then they would have eight hours off, then they'd come back to work again. But many of them slept right at their desk. Leetweiler and his staff concentrated on one page at a time, checking all the clues, deciphering page upon page of text, day after day. While researching his book, Stinnett uncovered a second document drafted by Leetweiler, which was received by his superiors in Washington. In it, Stinnett says Leetweiler indicated that his Corregidor team was reading current traffic and had broken the Japanese naval code. Commander Leetweiler says that he was current in, in uh, de intercepting, decoding, and translating the messages as of November 16, 1941. What more do you need? Stinnett also maintains that the Japanese fleet, led by Vice Admiral Nagumo, broke radio silence as they steamed towards Pearl Harbor, allowing U.S. interceptors to track the course of the oncoming ships. The actual evidence that Stinnett has uncovered, that not only did Nagumo break radio silence, but the U.S. Uh, naval listening posts were listening to Nagumo's transmissions and therefore plotting Nagumo's voyage across the Pacific towards Pearl Harbor only adds credence to the explanation that FDR suppressed here yet another piece of vital intelligence deliberately kept the commanders at Pearl Harbor in the dark.
November 1941, Japanese warships churned up the waters of the Pacific as they proceeded towards Hawaii. During those tense days, some people believe that President Franklin D. Roosevelt was setting up his own naval base at Pearl Harbor for attack. Author Robert Stinnett insists he has proof that the Japanese fleet broke radio silence during its voyage southeastwards. If so, the U.S. Navy would have been well aware of the approaching vessels. The radio silence doctrine is another of the major Pearl Harbor hoax. It, 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 it holds that, uh, that beginning on, on November 25th, Hawaii time, the Japanese Navy went on radio silence. Until now, most authorities have accepted that the Japanese ships maintained strict radio silence as they approached Hawaii. Stinnett agrees that the Japanese naval commander ordered radio silence, but he says a proviso in the order allowed individual captains to ignore it. The Japanese admirals, for some strange reason, they threw that order to the wind and engaged in extensive radio communications with one another as they were approaching Pearl Harbor. One American who was tracking those communications, according to Stinnett, was Leslie Grogan. He was a radio operator on a cruise ship bound for Honolulu. The SS Lurley, which is a passenger liner, was en route from San Francisco to Hawaii. They also had a radio direction finder aboard, and the radio operators were listening to the Japanese warships. So they picked up the messages, these extensive uh, uh, military naval communications. And they picked them up from about November 30th uh, to about December the 5th. Just a few days after the assault on Pearl Harbor, U.S. naval intelligence confiscated the original logbook from the Lurley, including Grogan's notes. The log was eventually sent for storage to a federal record center outside San Francisco. It then somehow disappeared. All that remains of the log's existence is an undated, unsigned withdrawal slip. But Grogan apparently reconstructed his notes on the day his log was appropriated. Fifty years later, Robert Stinnett tracked them down. Grogan wrote that the Japanese radio transmission boldly blasts away that the signal's finder bearings and the main body of the signals came from north and west of Honolulu. Stinnett maintained that even U.S. naval intelligence in Pearl Harbor picked up the radio transmissions of the Japanese fleet. He cites a communications intelligence summary issued by the Navy's listening post at Pearl Harbor. The document was dated the 25th of November, 1941, the very same day the Japanese attack fleet left for Hawaii. It reported that the commander-in-chief of Japan's first air fleet, Vice Admiral Nagumo, held extensive communications with the Central Pacific commander. Stinnett asserts ominous radio traffic was picked up by Allied personnel all around the Pacific Rim. You have the stations at Seattle, you have the stations in Eureka and San Francisco picking up the same, the same messages. This is not one or two, this is uh, uh, scores of people reporting, uh, hearing these messages, and it was put in, in, in the naval records, it's documented. 
meeting did take place at the White House after, according to Stanet, stations on the west coast of America intercepted a flurry of Japanese communications. In attendance were President Roosevelt, the Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Harold Stark, and the Army Chief of Staff, General George Marshall. On November 27th, uh, uh, President Roosevelt told uh, General Marshall to send a message to the Hawaiian and Philippine commanders, don't interfere with Japan's overt act of war. The United States desires that they, uh, Japan, commit the first overt act. The commander at Pearl Harbor, Admiral Husband Kimmel, received this message at his headquarters. In other words, let the Japanese submarines uh, uh, enter Pearl Harbor and try to sink our ships. There's no argument about what FDR meant. Uh, he meant that, uh, that the U.S. naval plan uh, to defend Pearl Harbor should not and cannot be executed. Admiral Stark and FDR, it seems, obviously wanted the Japanese to surprise and utterly destroy Pearl Harbor. At 7.55 a.m. on the 7th of December, after a three and a half thousand mile voyage across the North Pacific, the Japanese flotilla of more than 30 vessels delivered its cargo of bombers and fighter planes. Within two hours, the first air assault in military history to be entirely launched from aircraft carriers had obliterated the U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor. most of the U.S. Pacific Fleet and killed over 2,400 sailors, soldiers, and civilians. The following day, the United States declared war on Japan. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Three days later, Germany, Japan's ally, declared war on the United States. According to Hill and Stinnett, these events unfolded exactly as Roosevelt had intended. The historical record judged that Pearl Harbor was a tragic consequence of bungled opportunities and missed clues. But Stinnett, Hill, and others believe that is a naive interpretation of events. If anything, they say, President Roosevelt was directly responsible for the tragedy of Pearl Harbor. Gross negligence becomes high treason when the motive is discovered or understood. The bomb plot message. 
cracking of the secret Japanese naval operations code. The breaking of radio silence by the attacking fleet. These three crucial pieces of evidence, according to some researchers, suggest that highly placed members of Roosevelt's administration knew in advance of the planned attack on Pearl Harbor. But why would the president and his senior advisors allow the murder of thousands of Americans to happen? The alleged conspiracy is based on the notion that Roosevelt knew the Pearl Harbor catastrophe would result in war with Hitler and Nazi Germany which was exactly what he wanted. The problem for President Roosevelt was to end the isolation movement in this country. By 1940, the Second World War was well underway in Europe, and Roosevelt regarded eventual American involvement as inevitable. But Americans, for the most part, hadn't yet come to that conclusion. Opinion polls conducted just months before Pearl Harbor show that 70 to 80% of Americans did not want to go to war against Germany. So while the general public in America tried to ignore the situation, Hitler devoured most of Europe and then let loose the blitz on Great Britain. In the Pacific, Japanese forces occupied China. September 1940, the Axis nations of Germany, Italy, and Japan signed a formal mutual assistance treaty called the Tripartite Pact. The key phrase was that uh, if uh, any one of the nations got into a state of war with a country not yet in the European conflict, then that would trigger this uh, uh, Tripartite Pact and they would come to one another's aid. FDR deliberately and methodically provoked Japan in order to trigger the provisions of the pact and force America out of its isolationism. According to his theory, Roosevelt knew a surprise Japanese attack would enrage the public and jumpstart the American war machine. In this way, the president would gain entry through the back door to what he really wanted, war with Hitler. Within 10 days of that signing, the United States came up with a plan to trigger this tripartite pact into the state of war and to aim provocations at Japan to commit an overt act of war against the United States. According to Stinnett, that plan was drafted by Lieutenant Commander Arthur McCollum at the Office of Naval Intelligence. On the 7th of October, 1940, McCollum arrived at his office in Washington to put the finishing touches to a memo. Some would say it was the most important document he ever wrote. Commander McCollum wrote a memo to the Director of Naval Intelligence and listed the eight uh, actions that he said would cause Japan to commit an overt act of war. They included keeping the U.S. fleet in the vicinity of Hawaii rather than returning into San Diego, putting an end to all trade with Japan, including the sale of crude oil, and sending two divisions of submarines to the Orient. McCullum sent this memo to his boss, the Director of Naval Intelligence, 
Stinnett believes that FDR and his advisors soon saw it. President Roosevelt ordered that the you know, most important messages be delivered to him. And Commander McCollum was his routing officer. Uh, he routed all of the messages that he wanted the, the President Roosevelt to see, and which the President wanted to see, through the naval aid. According to Stinnett, Roosevelt immediately adopted McCollum's memo as his own step-by-step -step blueprint for provoking a war with Japan. Circumstantial evidence shows that he acted on every one of the eight provocations. Richard Hill also accepts the backdoor theory. FDR certainly did have a motivation to deliberately withhold vital intelligence from Pearl Harbor for the purpose of accomplishing a complete and total Japanese victory at Pearl Harbor, which would then necessarily and inevitably be blamed on Germany. One poll taken immediately after Pearl Harbor showed that more than 60% of Americans indeed thought that Germany was behind the attack. Americans were very inclined to believe that Germany was the puppet master controlling Japan. Richard Hill and Robert Stinnett insist that the American government is still sitting on more evidence showing that Roosevelt had foreknowledge of the attack on Pearl Harbor. A cache of information on code breaking, intercepted radio transmissions, and the assault itself remains classified information. It will not be divulged uh, unless they, the government, want it divulged. Hill also contends that the military cryptologists themselves continue to obscure the search for truth out of a sense of duty. They cannot, under orders, talk about anything that they ever did in World War II until it is officially declassified. Strengthened by documents declassified in the 1990s, Hill, Stinnett, and other Pearl Harbor researchers have resuscitated the salient points of a conspiracy theory that Congress addressed and dismissed in 1946. In the process, they've created a few An intermittent battle has raged concerning what exactly was known in advance of the attack. In recent years, a number of authors and historians have rekindled the debate based in part on newly declassified documents. Historian Richard Hill and author Robert Stinnett both claim that top American officials, including President Roosevelt himself, saw the so-called bomb plot message, realized it signaled an impending Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, and deliberately withheld the information from the commanders in Hawaii. Warren Kimball has written extensively on the history of the Second World War, and he disagrees profoundly. The bomb plot message didn't prove a thing. There's nothing in the bomb plot message that said Japanese planes will appear over Pearl Harbor on the morning of December 7, 1941. Nor is there any incontrovertible evidence that the information ever landed on Roosevelt's desk. All the evidence indicates that Roosevelt did not read original decrypts. Kimball also thinks there's an obvious reason why the U.S. military commanders did not grasp the significance of the bomb plot message. There was a huge amount of information coming in 
to Washington and to other intelligence collection uh, locales about what the Japanese were doing and separating noise from intelligence about the actual attack was extraordinarily difficult. In the late 1990s, a journalist called Stephen Budiansky was researching his book on code breaking in World War II. He found a crucial document. It provides a powerful counter to the argument that America had cracked the Japanese naval operations code before Pearl Harbor. We have the month-by-month -month progress reports of all of the U.S. Navy's code-breaking groups. These were prepared at the time. They have date stamps on each one of them, one for each month throughout 1940 and 1941. Budiansky says that the Naval Intelligence Progress reports show that, even a month after Pearl Harbor, cryptologists still had not broken the Japanese naval code known as AN-1, and later, JN-25. On January 8th, 1942, we see in the record decrypt number one in JN-25, and a couple of months later, we've gotten to the point where, again, by no means all of the code book had been recovered, or, or the, all of the additive book, but enough to start getting current messages decrypted. Progress reports appear to prove that the code breakers were telling the truth in 1945 when they testified before Congress. Everyone who worked on it at the time has said then and since that we simply were not far enough along to read any of these uh, Japanese naval messages for intelligence values. Regarding the so-called proof that the Japanese code had been broken, which is contained in a document written at Corregidor by the commanding officer, John Lietweiler, Bodiansky argues that the letter has been misinterpreted. They meant they had figured out how it worked. They'd figured out the indicator system, they'd figured out the mechanism, how, how it worked. Then there was still a huge amount of work to do. Bodiansky also disputes the claim but the Japanese fleet broke radio silence as it headed to Hawaii, so giving away its position to American intelligence. The only signals that were being picked up were coming not from the attack fleet itself, but from shore stations, which were attempting to deceive us into thinking that they were those ships, and that those ships were still in Japanese home waters. In fact, in an update written by Naval Intelligence in Washington on the 1st of December 1941, the Japanese aircraft carriers were described as operating in home waters, even at the time they were proceeding at full speed towards Hawaii. The best-known American expert on the cryptographers of the Second World War is New York author, historian, and former editor of Newsday, David Kahn. None of the American radio men who were listening very hard for these things, and our guys were very sharp on this, heard any transmissions from the carriers. And even more important, perhaps, is that the Japanese themselves say that there were no transmissions from the carrier. Protagonists of the conspiracy theory contend that Roosevelt's motive for permitting the attack was that it would give him a backdoor entry into the war in Europe. Most mainstream historians reject that hypothesis. The idea that the Pacific War, a war against Japan, was a backdoor to war, misunderstands fundamentally the structure of American strategic thinking at this time. David Kennedy won a Pulitzer Prize in the year 2000 for his book on the Depression and World War II. 
war against Japan was a distraction, and it, it actually depleted resources from the main theater of conflict, which was Europe. It compels us to understand how absolutely outrageously impossible is the notion that there was a conspiracy. Kennedy also maintains that Robert Stinnett misunderstands the terms of the tripartite pact. Stinnett contends that it required Germany to come to the defense of Japan if it was in a state of war. But the agreement did not require Germany to come to Japan's aid unless Japan was the victim of aggression. Specific terms of the agreement required each and every one of them to come to the aid of another, another member of the pact, if that other party were attacked. So when the Pearl Harbor event happened, Japan had not been attacked. Japan was the attacker. Nor does Kennedy accept the argument that nothing short of an unprovoked act of war would persuade Americans to abandon their historic support for isolationism. There's no question that Franklin Roosevelt had a huge historic job on his hands to convince the American people that they indeed had a stake in the outcome of this conflict. But in my judgment, he had largely succeeded in convincing a heavy majority of his countrymen that the United States must play a role in this matter. Kennedy is at pains to point out the enormous budget Congress passed nine months before Pearl Harbor was bombed. The Lend-Lease Act committed the U.S. to providing Britain with huge amounts of munitions, planes, and other essential war materials. The cost of the aid was $7 billion more than six times the entire American defense budget of just three years earlier. It was a very, very dramatic victory for Roosevelt in overcoming <laughs> this deep isolationist tendency. Uh, okay, I mean, to keep it together, but Many right. experts also dispute the idea that the memo written by Lieutenant Commander Arthur McConnell was adopted by FDR as his blueprint for war. It's improbable, if not ludicrous, to think that there would not be a strong indication somewhere in the document, somewhere in memoirs, somewhere along the line, that that memo was a guiding principle. The notion that the cable Admiral Kimmel and Lieutenant General Short received nine days before the attack amounted to an order to stand down has also been vehemently repudiated. Instead, much of the cable gave the opposite impression. The war alert uh, warning. Uh, was quite explicit that the, for traditional, political, and I dare say even moral reasons, uh, the United States wanted the Japanese to fire the first shot. But the same message said with emphasis that this instruction to make the Japanese take the first step should not, repeat not, put any of your forces in danger. If it involves compromising the defense of your force and being, then don't do it. According to David Kahn, blame for the attack lies squarely with the commanders of Pearl Harbor, not the president or his advisors. Those two commanders, Short and Kimmel, had one job there to do, and that was defend Pearl Harbor. They had one job to do, and they didn't do it. That judgment may be unduly harsh. Other historians insist the blame doesn't stop at Kimmel and Short. The true history, they say, is neither black nor white, but an obscure shade of gray. These historians charge that a saber-rattling United States deliberately provoked the Japanese, and the attack at Pearl Harbor 
was simply a preemptive strike. President Roosevelt was trying to put so much pressure on Japan that the Japanese had very little choice but to attack the United States somewhere. Towards the end of July 1946, the Joint Congressional Committee on the Investigation of the Pearl Harbor Attack released its final gargantuan report. Most historians regard the report as an invaluable resource. They went uh, as far as they possibly could go in unearthing the material. But not everyone agrees. The commission was the product of politics in Washington. The purpose was not one of, of objective scholarship. Robert Smith Thompson, Professor Emeritus of International Studies at the University of South Carolina, has written several books on international relations. Thompson was perplexed by Japan's motive for launching a surprise attack. The country, he says, must have known that America would retaliate in a war the Japanese could not possibly win. So Thompson examined the committee's records to find out why Japan committed itself. I was convinced that uh, there was something they perceived to be almost catastrophic that would have led them to bomb Pearl Harbor. Yeah, the uh, commission didn't address that kind of issue. Thompson found no evidence that FDR and his advisors knew about the attack and allowed it to happen. Instead, he saw the attack as a preemptive strike perpetrated by the Japanese High Command, convinced that it had to prevent an imminent U.S. assault on its country. Thompson says Japan interpreted several U.S. moves as aggressive measures. The construction of American bases along the Pacific Rim. The relocating of the Pacific Fleet from San Diego to Hawaii. And the oil embargo imposed by America on Japan. Taken all together, these actions convinced Japan that it had to attack America before it itself was attacked. What Roosevelt was doing was putting enormous pressure on the Japanese to back off from their war in China. Why? They were constantly bombing uh, American mission churches in China. They were just bombing everything they could find to bomb. And Roosevelt believed that they were a truly truly vile uh, uh, outlaw nation. The historical consensus is that Roosevelt, despite his hatred of Japan, wanted to avoid a war and instead concentrate on attacking Nazi Germany. But Thompson doesn't think this view entirely explains FDR's policy on Japan. He was very aggressive that he was definitely trying to bring the United States into a state of, of being able to crush the Germans and the Japanese. There were, there were build-ups taking place in both the Atlantic and the Pacific. He was prepared to fight a two-front war. For those reasons, Thompson maintains, Roosevelt does share some of the blame for the Pearl Harbor assault. He wasn't acknowledging what he was doing. President Roosevelt provoked the Japanese into war. Ever since the 7th of December 1941, the attempt to explain the attack on Pearl Harbor has included stories of intrigue and conspiracy. When something is incredible, you want to find some way to make quote unquote sense about it. And I think a number of people can't simply deal with the fact that they were good enough to beat us, so it must have been a conspiracy. The somewhat frantic efforts to explain the attack 
include no less than 10 separate investigations conducted by the Roosevelt administration, the Army, the Navy, and the United States Congress. The panels in general found that Lieutenant General Short and Admiral Kimmel, the disgraced Pearl Harbor commanders, had indeed failed in their duty. They were wrong, and it was basically their fault that caused the deaths of uh, 2,400 Americans at Pearl Harbor. But then, as now, critics insisted that Washington was making scapegoats of two honorable men. In October 2000, Congress passed an amendment to a military spending bill that cleared the Pacific commanders, both long since dead. Short and Kimmel cannot be blamed, just as Congress found. They were denied this information, they were told to stand aside and let Japan commit the first overt act. Kimmel and Short, on the ground, become, to use a word Americans will become very familiar with, become the patsies. Robert Goldberg, a professor of history at the University of Utah, has written extensively about the role of the conspiracy theory in American culture. The conspiracy theories about Pearl Harbor actually shift the blame and the burden, the guilt away from the Japanese. The guilt and the burden of Pearl Harbor is not in Tokyo. These conspiracy theories are very much politically motivated. In September 1944, shortly before Roosevelt stood for re-election for the fourth time, a Republican representative, Forrest Harness of Indiana, made the first congressional charge alleging a Pearl Harbor conspiracy. He said that three days prior to the attack, the Australian government had warned Washington that a Japanese aircraft carrier was steaming towards Hawaii, but the information was withheld from Kimmel and Short. Charges of this sort had been in the air for a long time, but the Indiana legislators' allegation entered them permanently into the public record. They have been the source of controversy ever since. Any such conspiracy would have had to involve so many people. It would have been a conspiracy so vast and an infamy so deep as to dwarf anything in the history of mankind. FDR's personal fingerprints cannot be found, of course, because the case against him is uh, highly circumstantial. But circumstantial cases, of course, convict criminals all the time. The 1945 Congressional Committee did criticize Washington officials for ignoring the bomb plot messages. But its Democratic majority found no evidence to support the charges that Roosevelt and his top aides, quote, tricked, provoked, incited, cajoled, or coerced Japan into attacking this nation, unquote. However, the minority report written by the Republicans on the committee lambasted Roosevelt and his war council for failing to carry out their essential responsibilities. Today, several historians continue to search for a satisfactory explanation for the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. I think we were insulted as an advanced industrial state that we could be taken on so successfully by a country that just two or three generations earlier had been essentially in a medieval state. How could this have happened? Uh, the only explanation must be that somebody on the American side had been derelict in duty or even treasonous. So these are natural psychological reactions. They're not very lovely to contemplate, but I think that's what underlies this. Those who still seek answers may turn again to the bomb plot message and the sworn testimony that, of all the intercepted messages, 
no other resembled it. They will remember that the army and navy chiefs were fastidious men obsessed with detail. And it will seem unlikely that they could have missed it, and more understandable to believe that they did not. Here is an event where thousands of Americans died in a surprise attack. Here is an event that ushered America into four years of war. If there wasn't a conspiracy theory about this, I would be surprised. Roosevelt. 
FDR was making all the decisions. Every historian understands that FDR was reading all of the U.S. intelligence decrypts of Japanese coded transmissions. I know. Two men in particular could make immediate use of the information. Admiral Husband Kimmel and Lieutenant General Walter Short, the commanders at Pearl Harbor. But they never received it. According to Hill, that was not an accident. If FDR and his administration deliberately withheld the vital intelligence from Pearl Harbor, and all the evidence indicates that they did, then it was certainly a deliberate conspiracy to set Pearl Harbor up for a total defeat. There are other researchers who support Hill's extraordinary hypothesis. They allege the key to understanding exactly what Roosevelt and other officials knew, and at what point they knew it, lies within the United States code-breaking operation. Breaking the Japanese military codes is, was uh, America's great secret of World War II. All agree that, sometime before Pearl Harbor, the U.S. had broken the Japanese diplomatic codes. But in 2000, Robert Stinnett completed almost 20 years of research by publishing his findings, which conclude that America had also cracked the top-secret operational codes of the Japanese Navy. Navy would have been well aware of the approaching vessels. The radio silence doctrine is another of the major Pearl Harbor hoax. It, 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 it holds that, uh, that beginning on, on November 25th Hawaii time, the Japanese Navy went on radio silence. Until now, most authorities have accepted that the Japanese ships maintained strict radio silence as they approached Hawaii. Stinnett agrees that the Japanese naval commander ordered radio silence, but he says a proviso in the order allowed individual captains to ignore it. The Japanese admirals, for some strange reason, they threw that order to the wind and engaged in extensive radio communications with one another as they were approaching Pearl Harbor. One American who was tracking those communications, according to Stinnett, was Leslie Grogan. He was a radio operator on a cruise ship bound for Honolulu. The SS Lurley, which is a passenger liner, was en route from San Francisco to Hawaii. They also had a radio direction finder aboard, and the radio operators were listening to the Japanese warships. So they picked up the messages, these extensive uh, uh, military naval communications and they picked them up from about november 30th uh, to about december the 5th just a few days after the assault on pearl harbor u.s naval intelligence confiscated the original logbook from the learning including grogan's notes the log was eventually sent for storage to a federal record center outside san francisco it then somehow disappeared all that remains of the log's existence is an undated, unsigned withdrawal slip. But Grogan apparently reconstructed his notes on the day his log was appropriated. Fifty years later, Robert Stinnett tracked them down. Grogan wrote that the Japanese radio transmission boldly blasts away, that the signal's finder bearings and the main body of the signals came from north and west of Honolulu. that even
even U.S. naval intelligence in Pearl Harbor picked up the radio transmissions of the Japanese fleet. He cites a communications intelligence summary issued by the Navy's listening post at Pearl Harbor. The document was dated the 25th of November, 1941, the very same day the Japanese attack fleet left for Hawaii. It reported that the commander-in-chief of Japan's first air fleet, Vice Admiral Nagumo, held extensive communications with the Central Pacific Commander. Stinnett asserts ominous radio traffic was picked up by Allied personnel all around the Pacific Rim. You have the stations in Seattle, you have the stations in Eureka and San Francisco picking up the same, the same messages. This is not one or two, this is uh, uh, scores of people reporting, uh, uh, hearing these messages, and it was put in, in, in the naval records, it's documented. A meeting did take place at the White House after, according to Stanet, stations on the west coast of America intercepted a flurry of Japanese communications. In attendance were President Roosevelt, the Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Harold Stark, and the Army Chief of Staff, General George Marshall. On November 27th, uh, uh, President Roosevelt told General Marshall to send a message to the Hawaiian and Philippine commanders, don't interfere with Japan's overt act of war. The United States desires that they and Japan commit the first overt act. The commander at Pearl Harbor Admiral Husband Kimmel received this message at his headquarters. In other words, let the Japanese submarines uh, uh, enter Pearl Harbor and try to sink our ships. There's no argument about what FDR meant. Uh, he meant that, uh, that the U.S. naval plan uh, to defend Pearl Harbor should not and cannot be executed. Admiral Stark and FDR, it seems, obviously wanted the Japanese to surprise and utterly destroy Pearl Harbor. At 7.55 a.m. on the 7th of December, after a three and a half thousand mile voyage across the North Pacific, the Japanese flotilla of more than 30 vessels delivered its cargo of bombers and fighter planes. Within two hours, the first air assault in military history to be entirely launched from aircraft carriers had obliterated the US naval base at Pearl Harbor. Pacific fleet and killed over 2,400 sailors, soldiers, and civilians. The following day, the United States declared war on Japan. Yesterday, December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Oh.
Ralph had intended. The historical record judged that Pearl Harbor was a tragic consequence of bungled opportunities and missed clues. But Stinnett, Hill, and others believe that is a naive interpretation of events. If anything, they say, President Roosevelt was directly responsible for the tragedy of Pearl Harbor. Gross negligence becomes high treason when the motive is discovered or understood. The bomb plot message. The cracking of the secret Japanese naval operations code. The breaking of radio silence by the attacking fleet. These three crucial pieces of evidence, according to some researchers, suggest that highly placed members of Roosevelt's administration knew in advance of the planned attack on Pearl Harbor. Why would the president and his senior advisors allow the murder of thousands of Americans to happen? The alleged conspiracy is based on the notion that Roosevelt knew the Pearl Harbor catastrophe would result in war with Hitler and Nazi Germany, which was exactly what he wanted. The problem for President Roosevelt was to end the isolation movement in this country. secret reports fell on the desks of America's spymasters. Overwhelmed, the analysts missed clear signs of impending disaster. The intelligence bureaucracies distrusted each other and didn't share information that could have averted an unprecedented attack on the United States. This was not 9-11. It was the 7th of December, 1941. On that day at Pearl Harbor, 2,400 lives were lost. It was a devastating defeat that changed America forever. For many years, controversy has surrounded the subject of Pearl Harbor, the event that finally propelled the reluctant nation into the Second World War. But was the surprise attack really a surprise? Who knew about it? And who failed to avert it? We knew what Japan was up to. We knew it before Pearl Harbor. We knew it all through the war. From the outset, some experts asserted that the highest echelons of the administration of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt knew of the Japanese plans in advance and did nothing to stop them. As new evidence emerges, the charges persist, giving rise to fierce debate. FDR, it seems, obviously wanted the Japanese to surprise and utterly destroy Pearl Harbor. What motive could Roosevelt possibly have had for doing such a thing? There's not a drop of evidence. There's speculation, accusation, allegation, and I think sort of dreaming. What we have here is a cover-up and a conspiracy on the part of the FDR administration. Did President Roosevelt know in advance and has a government-led cover-up continued to this day? The sounds of horses' hooves to investigate.
investigate the event that catapulted America into the war. Three months after VJ Day, Senator Alban Barkley of Kentucky convened the Joint Congressional Committee on the investigation of the Pearl Harbor attack. This exhaustive review produced 25,000 pages of testimony and documentation. The committee laid much of the blame on the commanders at Pearl Harbor and largely exonerated Roosevelt and his senior advisors. But its conclusions resulted in charges of cover-up and cronyism. Now, in the 21st century, as the American government declassifies reams of World War II documents, some experts are reopening the case for a conspiracy. The only way that the Japanese could pull off such a real and According to Stinnett, this proves that Roosevelt's closest military advisors must have known when and where the attack would occur. The fact that we broke it, we knew what Japan was up to. We knew it before Pearl Harbor. We knew it all through the war. We knew where, the, where Japan's uh, ships were going to be, what their plans were, were to be. Stinnett's evidence includes two U.S. naval dispatches. In a memo sent in October 1940, over a year before Pearl Harbor, Rear Admiral Royal Ingersoll, the Assistant Chief of Naval Operations in Washington, documented the progress of his code-breaking team. This secret cable to his specific commanders referred to the Japanese Naval Operational Codes. It read, It is estimated that at least six months will be required before complete messages can be read. He said that we had broken the Japanese operations code. If Ingersoll's timetable was accurate, America should have been able to decrypt secret Japanese naval correspondence by the spring or summer of 1941. The smoking gun of Pearl Harbor is the breaking of the Japanese uh, naval code. And, and, and it's only until recently when I filed Freedom of Information Act requests with the Navy that I got these records, and the, uh, including the uh, officer in charge who actually uh, broke the code and, and confirmed that. That officer in charge was Lieutenant Commander John Leetweiler. He and his 75-man code-breaking team labored inside an impregnable tunnel cut into a mountainside on the island of Corregidor in the Philippines. Photographers would work about eight-hour shifts, then they would have eight hours off, then they'd come back to work again. But many of them slept right at their desk. Leetweiler and his staff concentrated on one page at a time, checking all the clues, deciphering page upon page of text, day after day. While researching his book, Stinnett uncovered a second document drafted by Leetweiler, which was received by his superiors in Washington. In it, Stinnett says Leetweiler indicated that his Corregidor team was reading current traffic and had broken the Japanese naval code. Commander Leetweiler says that he was current in, in uh, de intercepting, decoding, and translating the messages as of November 16, 1941. What more do you need? Stinnett also maintains that the Japanese fleet, led by Vice Admiral Nagumo, broke radio silence as they steamed towards Pearl Harbor, allowing U.S. interceptors to track the course of the oncoming ships. The 
actual evidence that the Senate has uncovered that not only did Nagumo break radio silence, but the U.S. Uh, naval listening posts were listening to Nagumo's transmissions and therefore plotting Nagumo's voyage across the Pacific towards Pearl Harbor only adds credence to the explanation that FDR suppressed here yet another piece of vital intelligence deliberately kept the commanders at Pearl Harbor in the dark. Late November 1941, Japanese warships churned up the waters of the Pacific as they proceeded towards Hawaii. During those tense days, some people believe that President Franklin D. Roosevelt was setting up his own naval base at Pearl Harbor for attack. Author Robert Stinnett insists he has proof that the Japanese fleet broke radio silence during its voyage southeastwards. American couriers sent the deciphered message to the Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Harold Stark, and then to the Army Chief of Staff, General George Marshall.
that at least six months will be required before complete messages can be read. He said that we had broken the Japanese operations code. If Ingersoll's timetable was accurate, America should have been able to decrypt secret Japanese naval correspondence by the spring or summer of 1941. The smoking gun of Pearl Harbor is the breaking of the Japanese uh, naval code, and, and, and it's only until recently when I filed Freedom of Information Act requests with the Navy that I got these records, and the, uh, including the uh, officer in charge who actually uh, broke the code and, and confirmed that that officer in charge was Lieutenant Commander John Leetweiler. He and his 75-man code-breaking team labored inside an impregnable tunnel cut into a mountainside on the island of Corregidor in the Philippines. Cryptographers would work about eight-hour shifts, then they would have eight hours off, then they'd come back to work again. But many of them slept right at their desks. Weiler and his staff concentrated on one page at a time, checking all the clues, deciphering page upon page of text, day after day. FDR and his administration was to withhold the vital intelligence from Pearl Harbor. The question is, why did FDR withhold it? Richard Hill is an historian with a PhD from Georgetown University. He contends that FDR and members of his cabinet were aware of the Japanese plans to attack Hawaii. General Marshall and Admiral Stark and indeed FDR indeed knew that Pearl Harbor was being painted for a bombing run by the Japanese. October 1941, an intercepted diplomatic cable from Japanese High Command arrived at the Office of Naval Intelligence in Washington. Some months previously, America had cracked Japan's secret codes. It meant that cryptographers were able to decipher a coded message sent from Tokyo to its spies in Hawaii. That missive has since become known as the Bomb Plot Message. After the war, the Congressional Committee examined the bomb plot message. Officers questioned about it had passed it off as unremarkable at the time. But the committee had one general testify that the bomb plot message was in fact unique. Of the thousands of decoded Japanese cables, only this one asked for specific locations of ships at anchor. The bomb plot's intelligence specifically asked for the dispositions of the warships and airplanes guarding Pearl Harbor. The obvious intent of the bomb plot's intelligence was to place a grid over Pearl Harbor so that pilots flying in would immediately be able to identify the targets. A deluge of top secret reports fell on the desks of America's spymasters. Overwhelmed, the analysts missed clear signs of impending disaster. The intelligence bureaucracies distrusted each other and didn't share information that could have averted an unprecedented attack on the United States. This was not 9-11. It was the 7th of December, 
1941. On that day at Pearl Harbor, 2,400 lives were lost. It was a devastating defeat that changed America forever. Controversy has surrounded the subject of Pearl Harbor, the event that finally propelled the reluctant nation into the Second World War. But was the surprise attack really a surprise? Who knew about it? And who failed to avert it? We knew what Japan was up to. We knew it before Pearl Harbor. We knew it all through the war. From the outset, some experts asserted that the highest echelons of the administration of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt knew of the Japanese plans in advance and did nothing to stop them. As new evidence emerges, the charges persist, giving rise to fierce debate. FDR, it seems, obviously wanted the Japanese to surprise and utterly destroy Pearl Harbor. What motive could Roosevelt possibly have had for doing such a thing? There's not a drop of evidence. There's speculation, accusation, allegation, and I think sort of dreaming. What we have here is a cover-up and a conspiracy on the part of the FDR administration. Did President Roosevelt know in advance? And has a government-led cover-up continued to this day? Yeah. 